Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome back to The Politics Guys, Ken. It's great to be back, Trey. Oh, I know we had we had to kind of mix up the schedule a little bit to get here, uh, and then I, I got to take over for uh, Jay when he was out on vacation. Although I don't know if anybody can truly replace Jay. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that might be a good or a bad thing. We'll just leave that for listeners to decide yourselves. Uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, before Ken and I we get on the show, I do want to run over what we're going uh, to be covering today. It, it was a week where. You know, so there's some weeks we were just talking about this, Ken, where there's all these different items that might be what would be the best thing for the politics guys. And, and we have a conversation. We talk. And then this week, you know, th- there was kind of this clear here are the things we need <laughs> to yeah. do. Uh, now, of course, listeners, anytime we don't get to something, we're going to put that on this bonus show. And I think this week we're definitely going to see many of these last items uh, move over to the bonus show, uh, which is another great reason to be a supporter. Uh, But we're going to start off by talking about the January 6th commission uh, and and what's been going on this week with that and Pelosi and McCarthy. We're going to move from there and we're going to talk about the infrastructure slash stimulus bill, uh, talk about the possibilities of that bipartisanship, what's happening uh, there on that front. We're then going to talk about the Pegasus Project. That's the Israeli spyware used to hack cell phones and the implications of there. And because apparently uh, cybersecurity was the theme of the week, we're also going to take a look at the DOJ's indictment of Chinese hackers. uh, And we're going to talk about some of the State Department's criticism of the Chinese government. Uh, If we have time, we're then going to get to Fossey and Paul uh, and their ongoing feud. But we're going to try to move beyond uh, the feud and talk about the underlying facts there. Uh, if they're, again, time permitting, we're going to move on, talk about the Pennsylvania uh, and Arizona decertifying county voting machines. That's going to be a big deal. We're going to talk about Tom Barrick being arrested, which is as an uh, unregistered Ford agent, another big deal. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the federal court upholding Indiana University's vaccine requirement. So we got a lot on the docket, Ken, so I hope you're ready to talk. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But before we get into that, before we start with our first, which again is the January 6th commission, we're going to pause for just a few moments for a word from a sponsor. Well, Ken, we're back and we're going to be talking about the January 6th commission. Now, this past week, uh, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi blocked Representative Banks and Jordan from the January 6th commission. Now, this has led uh, Minority Leader McCarthy to threaten on Wednesday to completely pull all Republicans out of the committee and to pursue, in his words, in his own statement, their own investigation of the facts. Now, how they're precisely going to do that is obviously not something that's laid out in that. Uh, But of course, 
On the Republican side, those who are still in the commission see this as being a ploy. As a matter of fact, uh, this has continued to drive a wedge in the Republican Party among House members between kind of the fervent Trump, pro-Trump, pro-January 6th view. I mean, that's the best way I can put it. Uh, and, and those who who seem to be a little bit more reasonable and wanting to talk about this as being an insurrection and, and what causes and leads to it. Uh, and, you know, Pelosi is clearly making a statement here saying that she's not going to back down, right? I mean, she could have had uh, these jokers on the committee and, and, and moved forward, but, but she opted to not do that. So, Ken, what do you think this means for the Jan 6 Commission? Because, you know, three weeks ago when we talked about this, I couldn't but hear your words kind of echoing in my head. You had said that you thought the more partisan this committee would be, the better off it would be. In other words, to not make it like uh, uh, the 9-11 Commission and McCarthy uh, before that would have been far, far better, that you thought that this would probably get more at the truth. Well, this might be a push in that direction. So I'm curious what you think about this and how that lines up with your view from a few weeks ago. Yeah, I'm I'm delighted about every aspect of the way this is playing out. I, I think, you know, the the commission um, will be able to do a better job for the reasons we talked about a few a few weeks ago. I also think the politics of it are just um, terrific. Like I think for one thing, um, uh, it's a complete um, triumph of uh, Pelosi over McCarthy, which I like to see. Uh, for another thing, it's a it's a, it's a wedge issue um, uh, within the Republicans, as, as you just pointed out, um, and. Uh, for for a third thing, I think if if uh, McCarthy, you know, wants to somehow um, have a fact free investigation where they don't even bother, you know, having tools, they won't even have things like subpoenas, so there won't even be any any actual methods of getting at the truth, and they just want to do like some version of what's happening in in Arizona, uh, you know, have fun, you know. So I, I think it's uh, um, yeah, I, I I can't see any downsides of anything about the way this is going. Now, are you surprised? I mean, I'm a little bit surprised that McCarthy is taking this particular view. Uh, I mean, what's I, I don't really see what the gain here is, and I'm even sympathetic. I don't understand what the pragmatic gain for uh, for Republicans here is. You know, having this commission is going to move forward one way or the other. Uh, I was a little surprised that, about not even getting to even membership, and now to say, hey, we might you know, just pull our members out entirely. It just seems to be a loss. Now, the only possibility that I can see is, is that given the fact that these kinds of commissions have often, as we, again, we talked about this three weeks ago, uh, have not always uh, had the kind of uh, public buy-in. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, even, even the most biggest of the public buy-ins came to the 9-11 Commission, but of course you still had truthers running around uh, theoretically trying to, to poke holes in that. So the, the only kind of uh, angle I can see is, is that by saying, well, listen, if Republicans pull out of it, then no matter what comes out of it is easy to be able to label as just being partisan and therefore to kind of take away some of its uh, staying power. Do you so? I mean, one of the things that we really hadn't talked about in your positive side of the of the it, it's going to be partisan. Now, it might be a better in the sense of getting at truth and not having to have compromise. But do you think it makes it less likely to be any kind of politically relevant? Because if it's only Democrats on this commission, does that actually change anything in the landscape? Or is that always going to just be in the news as well? The Democratic Commission, which partisanly said, fill in the blank, uh, and, and just kind of cuts it off at the knees. Do you think, think that's a possibility? 
Well, I mean, of course it's a possibility, but I think that the um, the chances of that are not made worse by the fact that it's going to be a partisan commission. I think if it had been a bipartisan commission, that would have been exactly the same thing, particularly if it um, had members like Jim Jordan on it, who spent you know every breath that they got to take on the commission trying to say that about the commission from within the commission, you know, then that message just gets amplified the whole time the commission's doing its work. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't see that. Um, you know, not having those voices present um, is, is going to make it have less cre- credibility with hardcore Trumpers um, than having those voices present. But what they're saying would be that the the com- commission should have no um, credibility with hardcore Trumpers. So I I, I I just think that's kind of a, a lesser issue and that the the commission, if it's able to function in real time without all the antics, it's going to, I think, mainly seem more serious to people who aren't already uh, committed to one position or the other. And and then I think in the in the court of history, um, if the commission's able to actually write a good and thorough report, then in the court of history, that's going to um, look better and better over time. Yeah, again, I, I don't. This is not one of those areas where I think we have a lot of uh, disagreement between the two of us, and. You know, that's one of the things I just, I am continually just kind of disgusted that uh, we, we have not seen Republicans able in a real way to move away from, from, from this kind of delusional Trumpism. I, I mean, I, I can see maybe, and, that, and that's what I'm kind of, I was highlighting here in my questions to you, maybe some short, potential short-term gains. But I just I, I don't see any long term win by trying to pretend uh, that January 6th was anything other than something bad, unless you want to just go out the full blown view and say, like, look, I'm, I'm for a revolution or something, you know, like, OK, yeah. well, but, you know, take that view and just be upfront about it. That, that doesn't seem to be the case. And, and, and that's the same thing we see happening in the flipping of the grip, uh, you know, of the capital uh, firing, uh, firing shots. Uh, I, I I don't it it is it is difficult even for me someone who wants to be sympathetic to be anything but just kind of disgusted uh, that leadership in the Republican Party has decided to take that particular view and and maybe that's just partly me because I had hoped that the downfall of Trump would be a enough of a, a system shock to Republicans to kind of get them back. Uh, to being what they had been, but I, you know, I, I am daily growing less and less. Um, I, I don't see that as being a real possibility. So I guess one of the things I'm curious about from your point, and maybe I, and I've kind of asked this before, but I saw this the Jan. Six being, commission being another good time to kind of think about it, which is, I mean, is this just another example that we we don't really have? Uh, we don't really have kind of even the loyal opposition <laughs> to yeah, put I mean, it in I, British terms. Yeah. Although I will say this, there's a few contingencies that could still play out. Um, for one thing, the, the commission, in fact, is at least still a little bit nominally bipart- bipartisan because Liz Cheney is still on it. Well, and, and so is, um, I thought there's two, are they not? 
Um, no, I don't think the second one has agreed to serve, and it's only rumored that he's been asked. But oh, there's okay. been a lot of reporting that Adam Kinzinger has been asked. But um, yes, yes. Pelosi has not made that public because I, I think she's not trying to embarrass him if he won't do it. Um, but uh, but I think the, the, the background reporting is saying that Adam Kinzinger could be seated if he wants to be. And Liz Cheney definitely wants to be. So there's <clears throat> going to be at least one Republican, maybe two. The other thing that we don't really know is that there's nothing to stop um, McCarthy from changing his mind. And when when the commission has its first uh, um, hearing, its first day of hearing, those other three Republicans that Pelosi agreed to seat, they, they might still show up. You know, there's nothing to stop them from showing up. It's just that Kevin McCarthy said they're not going to show up. Right. But, you know, they, they've been appointed to the commission and their appointments have been confirmed by Nancy Pelosi. So, you know, there, there's still time for them to actually show up. So I don't know that we won't have a bipartisan commission, but it's certainly going to be run very heavily by the um, Democrats and, and by... Um, you know, at least at least one of the Republicans, maybe two or maybe as many as three, depending who's on it, will, um, um, you know, be looking to have a real serious investigation as well. So, you know, I mean, there's still a possible path towards a bipartisan investigation that's a serious investigation, depending who winds up seated on it. So may, maybe we don't have to give up on the idea of um, bipartisan cooperation to investigate um, one of the most serious crimes against the against the U.S. government that's been committed since the Civil War. But uh, I, I think, um, you know, otherwise, I don't know. I, I think the Republicans are still in the thrall of Donald Trump and they're they're not um, a serious partner in governing uh, until that's over. And we'll we'll talk about that even a little bit more in the context of the um, infrastructure bill negotiations, which we're going to get to today as well, uh, about the question of whether they've even been a serious partner in, in negotiating that. Well, as a matter of fact, why don't we go ahead and take a brief break, uh, ha have an ad, and then we, when we come back and talk about uh, that infrastructure bill, Ken. So, we're, sure. okay, let's, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about infrastructure. Okay, well, Ken, we kind of had a great segue a minute ago where we wanted to move from talking about the January 6th commission uh, to discussing the stimulus uh, infrastructure bill. Now, as of Friday, senators seem to be closing in on a $579 billion infrastructure deal um, after agreeing to pay for it yesterday uh, on uh, Thursday uh, by delaying a Medicare regulation. But the details aren't going to be finalized till Monday. Now, this, of course, comes after on Wednesday we had a, a procedural vote uh, hang up when Republicans and the 20, well, really both Republicans and Democrats in the 22 who were negotiating this said we weren't quite ready yet. Uh, so we're not going to see the details of this until Monday. Now, what the kind of the stick point that a lot of people think will move this forward is that, again, that Medicare rule. Now, what the Medicare rule did was it eliminates rebates for drug companies uh, and delaying it produces enough money to pay for a lot of the at least the 570 billion portion uh, of the bill, i.e. the bipartisan part, not the uh, reconciliation uh, co-bill, if you will. Now, right now, it looks like Democrats, including some key senators like Tom Carper of Delaware, are not fully on board with the bipartisan uh, bill because they've got a bunch of their own pet projects that are not in it. For example, uh, Carpenter wants more funding for water and sanitation. Other Democrats want high-speed rail in their states. Uh, but be that uh, wherever it may, there's a lot of Democrats who are still saying, this isn't spending enough on my key items, which I think is actually one of the problems with the, with the larger bill. But we'll get to that in a minute. Um, 
But right now, the question becomes, you know, how does it move forward? Pelosi again on Thursday and again then on Friday signaled that she would not vote on the bipartisan bill unless, of course, the Senate also then passed through reconciliation, the larger infrastructure bill. So this seems like we're, you know, we thought we'd get a lot more of it uh, kind of being done and happening uh, here today, which is Friday uh, for this. But it looks like some of it's not even going to come around until Monday. So I know, uh, Ken, that you see this as just being like like the performative side of things that, you know, let, let's get this done so that we can get to the reconciliation portion of it. So what do you think about this drawing out? Uh, and what do you think about the 579 infrastructure bill being paid for via the Medicaid rule? Well, I, I don't think there's going to be um, a, any bipartisan bill. And I, I've said that all along. I think there's only going to be the reconciliation bill. And so all of the um, relevant negotiations are amongst the Democrats. I think um, so. I You know, the, when Schumer took the vote uh, on Wednesday um, and 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 the the. Um, bipartisan bill was filibustered. Uh, I, I, I think that's that's the end of it, really. Now, I know he, he has said that uh, um, he'll substitute in a bipartisan bill into the um, reconciliation bill or perhaps take another vote on a bipartisan bill um, if, if the votes are there. But I, I don't think the votes could ever possibly be there because what you continue to have is five Republicans pretending that they're speaking for 11 Republicans when they're obviously not. And uh, and I think so. I think, you know, it's just there's a, 11 Republicans or more who are interested in using this process just simply for the purpose of delaying and running out the clock. But um, I think Schumer already called their bluff on Wednesday by by taking this vote and, and clarifying that they're not even willing to start debate because that's all Wednesday's vote would have done. It didn't it didn't require that they have an agreement yet. It just required that they be willing to start debating the details of an agreement. And, and they voted uh, against doing that. So I, I continue to say and, and I hope I, I hope. Uh, um, listeners remember what I said before because I, I haven't repeated everything, but uh, I continue to say that the only relevant negotiation is within the 50 Democratic senators and that all the delays that we're seeing are related to the fact that they haven't all agreed amongst themselves about what's going to be in, in the big bill. But they apparently have all agreed amongst themselves about the top line number. Um, and so when you talk about little details like the um, uh, Medicaid refund rule, which are relevant to Republicans in the bipartisan group, um, I don't think it matters whatsoever what's, uh, what, what things are relevant to Republicans in the bipartisan group. Um, I think that has no impact on what's going to pass, because the only thing that's going to pass are things that 50 Democrats agree to pass through reconciliation. Yeah, I mean, I think you're I think you're probably right about that. But again, my my problem is, is that that this is once again another bill that it's going to be bigger than general budgets. And we've already seen four of these now. Uh, and and I, when you kind of look at the nitty details, when you take a look at what uh, Democratic senators are fussing over, this is just the same old I want to have pork belly stuff come to my uh, my, my district. And, and, and in all honesty, that's a big, big portion of this. And again, Democrats for years, what they run on is the idea that we're going to spend it and we're going to pay for it. And yet for this for yet another time when Democrats have control and the ability to do it and put it through reconciliation, they're not going to be paying for it. That That's my fundamental problem with this. And I, I, I don't understand on this one. I'm not really sure why uh, Republicans want to try to to do. I would I would be more straight up and just come out against the bill uh, and, and and make uh, Democrats own it. 
Well, I think they have a. I think Republicans, their only chance of actually killing it is to not be as straightforward as you're saying, right? Well, I don't think they can kill it. Because yeah, I don't it, think they can either. I don't think they can either. But which I think makes, I think the, I think the yeah, yeah. I think this idea of delaying is pointless. I, I I think you're better off getting on the record early that it's a mistake for the following reasons, because otherwise, then it doesn't look. Because if, if you go through this whole negotiation process, you're giving credence to the idea that it, it, it's not a problem. Well, they're all going to vote against it, I think. So um, they will be able to get on record as having voted against it if that's what they want to do. Remember that these bills are hugely popular with the American people. That not, well, not yes. only it's very yeah. true. I mean, I mean, anytime you're yeah. spending vast amounts of money, of course it's popular. Yeah, and also that um, it's not that there's going to be no pay force. Now, you're certainly right that the pay force aren't going to cover the costs, but it's not like the four trillion is all going to be deficit spending either. There's going to be fairly significant pay force that may cover three quarters of it or four fifths of it um, uh, in terms of corporate tax rate increases, um, some personal tax rate increases at the at the high end for individuals over over four hundred thousand. Uh, greatly beefed up um, IRS enforcement again against people over four hundred thousand. Where um, you know not that they necessarily cheat more than anyone else, but they they cheat for more money than than anybody else. And, and so that's going to recapture hundreds of millions of dollars. And you know, there's there's going to be a number of, of pay-fors in it that are going to make a significant stride towards paying for all the spending. Uh, and also on, on pork barrel spending, I, I'm, I'm for it. Um, I know that's always been a big ideological difference between Democrats and Republicans about whether whether pork barrel spending is, is a good thing or a bad thing. And I, and I think Republicans are being sincere in, in their view that that's a bad thing. I don't think they're just being opportunistic. But, but I will say, um, I think it's a good thing. I think um, it's it's really the grease that makes it possible for Congress to legislate, and that um, if Congress is going to get things done, there sometimes have to just be um, concrete benefits to voters in districts that will make them uh, put pressure on their members to who represent them um, to vote in favor of, of bills that are in fact in the national interest. So I, I think that's fine. I mean, right, right here in Cincinnati, you know, the Brett Spence Bridge, which I know you know because I know you used to live around. Yeah. Here, that's down to one lane each way, and uh, um, that completely ties up Interstate 75, which is the the, the main artery from Detroit to Florida. Um, and you know that's that's not going to get fixed um, unless Congress uh, gives money to fix it. And I think it's good that you know this connects um, the 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 state that Mitch McConnell is senator from, and and um, uh, and Rob Portman is senator from the other side of the bridge. Um, uh, um, you know, there's Republican Congress members on both sides of that bridge. You know, I, I think it's a it's it's a wise move to put pressure on them um, to vote in favor of this bill or to put them on record as voting against um, uh, fixing a bridge that's of great interest to their constituents. So I think that's that's a good thing to do. The problem, though, is is that the Democratic view is that pork belly projects such as that are going to always be or often be things that are what constituents want. But when you take a look at the actual legislative record, you get all kinds of projects that have nothing to do with that. And they're actually about certain kinds. As a matter of fact, this is one of the reasons I can't figure out why Democrats are not more on board with this. It usually has more to do with contractors, special interests in those particular areas. So, for example, uh, the high 
high-speed rail kind of thing goes into the pockets of guys like Elon Musk and their uh, tunnels that go nowhere. Those are the kinds of things that we oftentimes see in these kinds of projects, not the kinds of stuff like the Brent Spence Bridge. As a matter of fact, if the Brent Spence Bridge was a great example of this, one of the many other bills that had come through that had promised how many presidents now have done a photo? I mean, Biden is in the long history of of presidents coming and saying we're going to put it there. But the money doesn't actually make it to those kinds of projects often. So it's always weird to me that, that, that Democrats are a little bit more on board with that because it seems like they're really just kind of saying, well, it's, it's, it's a populist ploy for what really is a corporatist grab. It, 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 it is, it's an example of where I don't quite understand why Dems are so on board with what, is, what clearly does not generally do the things that you're describing there. Uh, well, that's, because of, that's only because of Republicans, because re- Republicans are opposed no, to because earmarks. this bill is this bill is entirely a democratic bill so yeah well, this, this bill it. is gonna this bill is of course gonna fix the brent spence bridge but but all but all the the republican bills because they won't use earmarks it becomes possible for the money to get diverted to other things the way you're talking about but uh the democratic bills would use earmarks if there's money in the bill that is identified in the bill as for the brent spence bridge then that's a way to ensure that the money goes to the brent spence bridge true but again, the fact that even when Dems controlled the Congress, that they didn't do it in their past bills, and and but they spent money on other items indicates to me, again, that's anecdotal. But we're you know we're talking means that these kinds of items are not always the kind of populist uh, vision that you're putting putting forth there. You're saying, look, if you have earmark, it's always going to be things for voters, and it's going to make them more excited about the national interest. And I don't think it has, it generally has to do with particular voters, but with particular special interests inside of that. So key well, industries, et cetera. Well, let me give another example, because you, you mentioned high-speed rail. So I will acknowledge that if they build a high-speed rail from uh, Cincinnati to Columbus to Cleveland, which is part of the um, Democratic bill this time out, um, Sherrod Brown put that in there, um, I will acknowledge that there is not going to be an enormous ridership for that. But but I, I still think it's popular in Ohio, because there's going to be an enormous number of jobs building that, and they're going to be good jobs, and they're not going to necessarily require uh, college degrees to, to get those good jobs constructing that high-speed railroad. And uh, that is popular here. And so I, I still think, um, you know, some of the things that you're sort of poo-pooing is, well, a lot more people are going to drive over the Brent Spence Bridge than are going to ride a train from Cincinnati to Cleveland. You know, that may be true, but that doesn't mean that they don't all um, uh, benefit um, this region because the, the process of, of, of building out these construction projects is going to be of great benefit to the region. And also over time, the existence of that train, um, it, it may end up um, attracting more riders over time once once it's built. Well, one of the things that you know, you say, for example, we have this high speed train. If even if it doesn't do any good, uh, it's it, it will then, of course, uh, lead to jobs and other kinds of positives. But. In the economic literature, we know that that's not always the case. I mean, the the, the kind of the classic analogy is the ba- the baseballs and the windows, right? Uh, you know, what's one way to put a bunch of people to work in a in a small town? Well, throw a bunch of, of baseballs through windows. Or, in the case of, and I'll I'll go to the fictional city uh, of Springfield, right? Build the high speed rail in in Springfield because it's going to create jobs and other things. But of course. If there isn't really an underlying need or want for that, if it's not going to produce anything, 
I mean, you're you're wasting potential capital on stuff that you didn't need to. And in the case of this bill, to kind of circle back around, you're right in saying that Democrats are trying to pay for portions of it. But since we've now, this is going to be the fourth or the fifth large bill where we've paid for, as you've noted, about two thirds of it. Uh, when you put that all collectively, you're spending lots of not just today's money, but future people's money uh, and their ability to live uh, in, 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 in jeopardy for something like high speed rail for the thing that it does not appear will have any kind of real, true, tangible, long term benefits other than it benefits certain people in a few areas so that they may or may not pass it. That's, that's far from the kind of that, again, that kind of progressive idealistic vision that you put forward on those. And I think it also kind of takes away from the fact that, again, uh, I think Democrats are putting through a giant bill that they're not paying for entire, in, in its entirety again. Well, first of all, on the broken windows, uh, I think you got Keynes backwards there. Keynes actually said that that would be a good thing to do, the thing that you said wouldn't be a good thing to do. Right? Keynes said that it would improve the economy um, in times where um, there's there's unemployment um, to to just simply do things like break windows and rebuild them because it because it would it would actually uh, give people jobs um, and and that 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 the, the benefits of that outweigh any of the um, downsides um, and with a, with a railroad. Um, there are benefits of it. It's not actually the same as um, breaking windows and rebuilding them where you're only back where you started. Um, a high-speed rail um, between Cincinnati and, and, and Cleveland, although it probably wouldn't be um, able to pay for itself on a, on a balance sheet type basis without a big government subsidy, um, it would in fact provide benefits to some people immediately. There would be riders from, from day one. It would get some cars um, off the highways, which would benefit other people on the highways and, and benefit the environment. and. Over time, once people realized that it was there, um, you know, they, they might get more habituated to using it. Younger people might start using it when they were, um, you know, too young to own their own cars, and then they might keep using it even as they got older. So, and, and we do have to move the economy um, in a greener direction because of climate change. So, putting putting infrastructure in place that makes it possible over time for for people to get around without burning fossil fuels, um, you know, will be beneficial over time. So, there, I think there are benefits, but the jobs benefits. The immediate jobs benefits are, are worth it in and of themselves. Uh, you know, creating more um, uh, good jobs that can support middle class um, incomes, um, doing things like building railroads uh, is good in and of itself. And I, and I also think, when, you know, we don't have to talk about this just theoretically. We have evidence from across the entire 20th century. You know, every time the, the government has embarked in, in major spending projects, that, that has lifted a lot of people up uh, economically through the jobs that are created. Most most famously, of course, in, in the New Deal, um, but also in the building of the interstate highways uh, in the 50s and, and in the uh, LBJ programs of the 60s. And, and even when, when um, uh, Clinton, you know, it wasn't as significant, but, but even when Clinton um, raised taxes and raised spending in the 90s, you know, those are times that we had the, the best um, uh, economies and the most movement of people out of, out of poverty. It all depends on what you're spending on and whether you're paying for it. Again, you mentioned there at the end, you're right. In the Clinton years, we uh, we almost had a, a balanced budget. So, yeah, I mean, spending on the right things can lead to positive outcomes. But what I and you're right about Keynes. But what what the empirical evidence on Keynes' hypothesis was is that he was actually wrong about that. That that the overall uh, individual benefit wasn't there. A, a great example for uh, a great pragmatic example of this is spending on uh, uh, stadiums. Uh, 
right? So when local governments spend money on stadiums, the idea is that they're bringing more money in. But when we actually study this, what we find is that what we really did was we just shifted around how the money was being spent. We didn't actually increase the amount of, uh, for example, entertainment money in Cincinnati when they uh, built the new stadium. Instead, it just shifted where that money was being spent and how it was being spent. So to say that universally these kinds of projects do that is to ignore the evidence that came after the thesis by uh, Keynes that says that just spending in general doesn't do what you that doesn't just raise it it rather it just moves it it shifts it around uh, and I think stadiums are a really great example of that so it, again what you say that the Clinton era is very true but there was two parts to that one a targeted kind of spending and on the other side one of the biggest agreements between republicans and democrats to then actually pay for those spending items in a really real way as a matter of fact we haven't paid for anything like that since the clinton era so i would agree with you in pointing to clinton but i would suggest what's happening here is not the clinton model well it's a it's not quite the clinton model but it's 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 in, it's it's much more in that direction than what the status quo is because um, it, it would be a, a large increase in spending and a large increase in the revenue to pay for it. it it's true that the revenue isn't going to pay for all of it. And yeah, in the in the Clinton years, by 1997, I think we were actually in budget surplus, mm -hmm. at least for one year, maybe one and a half years. But this isn't going to get us into surplus. Certainly, it's going to still be deficit spending. But it's but the debt, but the spending, the majority of the spending is not going to be deficit spending. It's only going to be somewhere like 20 to 25 percent of the spending that's going to be deficit spending and 70 to 75 percent of this spending is going to be is going to be paid for so i think it's it's not i i could certainly agree with you that it, it would be better if it was fully paid for especially because we're not necessarily even in the, in the bust anymore we're moving back into the boom now and under keynesian theory which i don't accept has been disproved at all um but but keynesian theory would would say that you you do want to balance your budgets when you're in the uh, uh boom and you only want to deficit spend when you're uh, um, in the in the bust, which would have been, I think, last year's economy. Uh, but uh, but 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 I still think it's better to you know have a three quarters measure um, than to have no measure. You know that that a, a spending a big spending bill that's three quarters paid for is going to uh, benefit the economy. Maybe not as much as a a big spending bill that was fully paid for, but but significantly more than um, no no big spending bill at all. Well, I think what we need to do is pause for a minute to have a word from our sponsor, Kent, and then uh, move forward to talk about the Pegasus Project. Okay, so Ken, this week and we've had a, a spate, a spat, a spat, a spate, a, <laughs> a, a spat, a spate. Yeah, I don't know either, actually. <laughs> I'd say probably a spate. Uh, we're going to call it a spate. Uh, you know, it's always good when when two people with doctorates cannot know a basic word. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's spelled with an E at the end. I just don't know the pronunciation of it. You know, I'm having a moment. I'm having a mo I said that and it didn't sound right. I said it again. I thought I'll just change it in post-production. But instead, listeners, you're going to find you're, you're just going to hear this. This this is just coming to you as it is now. We've had a number <laughs> of cybersecurity issues this week. Uh, and, you know, uh, it kind of seemed like this was the week of dealing with technology. Now, the two big items, of course, are Pegasus and China. But I want to do them one at a time. And I want to start. Start um, with the Pegasus project. I want to start in Israel because that's a, a, one of the areas we oftentimes uh, study. But this one has a lot of ramifications in the United States. A 
big investigatory uh, effort by 17 different news outlets this week with help from Amnesty International reported that the spyware software called Pegasus was found. The Pegasus project is a powerful hacking tool used to spy specifically on journalists, human rights activists, and other high-ranking officials. Now, who's at the source of all this? Well, an Israeli surveillance company called the NSO Group, which has sold the Pegasus project to foreign governments and foreign agents. Now, how big of a deal is it? Well, it's big enough a deal that uh, Emmanuel uh, Macron was even part of the spyware and had to change his phones. It included, as PBS and other outlets showed, human rights activists, especially those linked in Saudi Arabia. The defense minister of Israel, Gantz, said on Tuesday that Israel was still, quote-unquote, studying the Pegasus Project and the revelations about the NSO as they emerged. As he said, quote, we approve the export of cyber products only to governments and only for legal use, he said in a speech uh, at Tel Aviv University. And he went on to say that countries that purchase these systems must meet our terms of use. Now, the wider Pegasus Project investigation found that the NSO actually had close links to the Israeli state. And in fact, in 2017, was given explicit permission by the Israeli government to try to sell the hacking tools to Saudi Arabia in a deal that reportedly was worth approximately 55 million. This has also been a big deal in ways that uh, we had talked about a couple of weeks ago, uh, myself and Mike, when it came to phones and security. Uh, but uh, at this point, let's kind of just start with the bigger question of the kind of the implications of this spying technology uh, and it coming out of Israel. What do you think about all this, Ken? Well, uh, I mean, th this spot, yeah, so the, the, I, I would separate the two things because although this spying technology did come out of Israel, I think um, uh, American technology companies could also theoretically come up with this kind of um, spying technology. So technology is a, you know, do doesn't respect national borders so much. Right, but right. yeah, but, but I think, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, the, the, the Israeli role in this, though, is worth scrutinizing because my, my take on this is this is yet another of the sinister aspects of the relationship between Trump and Netanyahu, um, that, uh, um, uh, that 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 Trump, um, who was you know very corrupted by the Gulf states, and we'll talk about the Tom Barak indictments later, um, you know Trump was um, always trying to um, um, you know do the bidding of the Gulf states um, in, in exchange for just simply for money. I think he was just bribed to do that. Um, the 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 Gulf states were very interested in getting this technology. Israel had it. Um, Israel, you know, one difference between Israel and the U.S. is that um, the U.S. would have had a, a Pentagon process. If, if, if a U.S. company wanted to um, sell this kind of technology to a Gulf state, the Pentagon would have had a, a, a process for reviewing and approving that, that it would have been hard for um, Trump to just completely keep um, bottled up within the White House. It, it would have been known to you know, career military and intelligence officials in the Pentagon and all that, whereas uh, Israel is just such a smaller country, smaller government that um, you know it was just more. It's easier for Netanyahu to just run operations out of his hip pocket. And uh, the the way I'm reading this was that Trump went to Netanyahu and said, um, "Look, we're we're um, you know the Gulf states want want this, and you you know it would be good if you could um, find a way to get it to them because your technology companies have it." Um, 
And I, I, I surmise that this was all wrapped up in the Abraham, Abraham Accords negotiations, although that hasn't been um, reported. That's just my own surmise. Uh, but that um, the timeline seems to match and that um, 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 Trump and Netanyahu had sort of a, a plan to normalize, um, re- at least starting starting off secretly, but to normalize relations between Israel and, and, and the Gulf states in order to kind of isolate uh, um, Iran and and, and to, to 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 give up on the uh, plight of the Palestinians, and uh, um, and that and that um, that the, the U.S. told Israel to go ahead and and authorize uh, the, these these sales to Saudi, even knowing that they were used for things like the murder of um, Jamal Khashoggi. Mm-hmm. Well, and that brings us kind of uh, full circle on this policy. I mean, one of the things that makes you know we talked about you can't just uh, code doesn't ha- have a national border necessarily, right? But one of the things that in law we haven't really seen pushed forward is the ability to have kind of protection over code, right? In the United States, for example, the continual push has actually been for companies to have back doors and other kinds of key code accesses uh, for across the con- uh, consumer spectrum. Uh, and in this case, you know, the, the attempt to then circumvent some of that you know, internationally, we haven't yet had any kind of big take on this. Do you think that the Pegasus project, and again, we'll talk more about the Chinese side of this hack, is an example of why it might be time to start having some legislation that that extends people's ability to lock down uh, uh, software for their own protection? Or, or, or do you think that's just going to be a pipe dream in the sense that no country is ever going to want to kind of put that uh, uh, liberty out there? That's to be one of the most difficult questions in uh, technology policy. And, uh, um, you know, I'm, I... I... <laughs> I've been on both sides of this question, so I, I don't. Um, I, I really feel like I, I'm very persuadable, but I, uh, um, I, I right now I'm, I'm even despite uh, you know this, this these spyware scandals that we're talking about now. I think my current thought is that the um, actual um, terroristic plotting that's going on in the United States, you know, mainly from um, kind of you know right wing militia type groups, uh, uh, you know. Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, um, even more extreme versions of that, but also still from Islamic terrorism inside the United States as well. Um, I, I think the public safety would really be too threatened if there was no way for law enforcement to engage in surveillance now. And that if we if we were living in a, a slightly less violent, less terrorism prone era than we are, I would be more uh, full throatedly in support of, um, you know, more uh, complete uh, privacy technologies. But I, I think, um, you know, even as we're seeing the wrap up of the January 6th terrorist plots, um, a lot of a lot of the arrests that have taken place since then have only been possible uh, because um, uh, the, the law enforcement is able to, um, you know, get in to see who was who texting who, when and from where and that kind of thing. And I, I think, a lot, you know, those kind of plots would be hard to break up in advance and hard to solve after crimes take place um, to, to maybe a, a really um, undesirable extent. So I'm going to put myself very weakly on the side of, of um, siding with law enforcement right now and saying that the, the harms that could occur if law enforcement um, couldn't penetrate 
penetrate um, uh, uh, telecom communications um, in America would be greater um, than the than the harms from these privacy violations. But but I, I am I am only weakly on that side. I could probably be persuaded back to the other side at some point. Yeah, I mean to, to just kind of put some of the the problems on their side is right. I mean, and, and you pointed it out. I mean, we this has been linked when you take a look at it with a number of instances of effectively assassination, uh, stalking, harassment of those families. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the other countries of, uh, of use for this is Russia, which seems to have used it against uh, journalists in, in major ways. And, and we've, we know in the past what Russia does uh, to, to dissidents on that front. So, I, I, you know, again, I understand what you're saying there. It is a difficult spot. But, you know, one of the things that makes these tools so particularly difficult when we talk about telecom, you know, it, it's not like we're just intercepting uh, people's voices. In the case of the of Pegasus, we're talking about the ability to hear everything throughout somebody's entire day, to know their location yeah. throughout the entire day. Uh, right. the, the ability to to know everything that's touched on that device, and in some cases potentially to even activate cameras in a way uh, that you know. So you, you know, it, it's it's a very broad, and I think that's what makes this such a difficult go, right? I mean, we, we, when you had your first, um, you know, one of the things a lot of times the courts look back at, and I think a lot of people look back at, is you tap somebody's phone, you're of course only tapping them when they're using it, when they've decided to engage in it. Uh, and, and today, for most of us, those kinds of devices, there isn't a not use period, right? They're always being used. And so to tap them means that you have access to that. Uh, and so having those there means that even more bad actors, you know, for example, this uh, week, Apple was noting that what uh, the NSO uh, group had been able to do uh, was only able to be done because it was targeted, right? It, it wasn't a mass attack. It had to be targeted, and therefore, uh, you know, it, it, the number of individuals who can be uh, hit was fewer. And I think, you know, on the other side, the the, the worry and the problem becomes then, well, if you have these uh, abilities to get in back doors, well, then if somebody has access to that, it's no longer even, you don't have the, I'm only if I'm targeted, now you have everybody's ability to be to be hacked on that front, Um yeah, it's a, it's a it's a complicated uh, uh, question. I, I probably tend to come down lightly, <laughs> as yeah. you kind of note on the other side a little bit. I, I, I am I'm very nervous about the idea that something in which one cannot disengage to yeah. really interact in the world is a way by which I could have a. Um, a warrant, right? So a warrant says that you're getting access to one very specific thing or part of me. Uh, it's very different than having a warrant that says I have access to everything about this person. And I, I don't think we've ever quite th even thought about it that way because we've never had devices that were like that before. You know, this this is new. Yeah. So as I listen to you, I think I could formulate my thought a little bit better after I heard you. After I heard your thoughts on this. So the 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 way I think what you were saying, and I agree, is that the ultimate choice is, you know, what, what are we more afraid of? Are we more afraid of um, bad government actors or are we more afraid of bad private actors? Because if we're if we're more afraid of bad government actors, including foreign governments, not yes, just exactly. we're not talking about the yeah, United yeah, States yeah, here. Yeah. Yeah. If we're more if we're more afraid of bad that, that, that we are threatened by bad government actors, then we should favor technologies that make it harder for those bad government actors to access our communications devices. Um, if we're more afraid of bad private actors than bad government actors, um, then we would want the um, government 
government to have the ability to track those bad private actors. And and I think that ultimately is the decision um, uh, matrix that I would look at this through. And so I, I would sort of, and I think, um, I, I do stand by what I said a minute ago that I think right now in today's world and fully acknowledging, you know, that there's very bad foreign government actors, that the Saudis use this technology to, to murder the Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, um, that the Russians have used this technology for all kinds of bad things and the Chinese have as well, um, and that, that all of that is a potential threat to me and you. Um, even still, um, I feel that the greater threats to, to me and you right now are um, from um, American terrorists. Terrorists, um, and so I, I, I think you know that's a contingent judgment, and it could be different at different times and, and that. But but I feel that right now, so I feel a little more comfortable um, right now with um, uh, our government having the ability um, to to penetrate um, 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 terrorism directed at America by non-state actors. Um, but again, I, I think that's just contingent on kind of, you know, my gut uh, instincts about, you know, where the greater threats to me lie. Yeah. I mean, and again, I think some of that's difficult because to, in, in order to be rational, one has to be able to be an odds predictor. And there are some things that are difficult, even for the best of us, uh, to assess odds predictions on. And I, I guess the reason I probably, even if I were to use your matrix, the reason I would probably come down the other direction is since I can't put a firm enough odds calculator on it, uh, but I can see the evidence of journalists, again, uh, being murdered, I, I have to weigh on that side because it's hard to put the actual lives against a probability that, that I that I am uncertain of how I would um, even approximate it in, in a meaningful way. Uh, but again, I mean, I, I, I don't think that it, on a first glance that that idea is, you know, you're kind of your, um, your matrix there, I don't think is a terrible one. It, it, maybe we could refine it a little bit, but for the amount of time we're talking about it, I don't think it's a terrible one. Uh, but I, I would just be uncomfortable coming down on the other side again, because I'm not sure how to calculate that in a meaningful way. And if I can't do that, then I don't think I can be rational answering it in that direction. Well, but we have actual, um, lots of actual acts of terrorism in this country. I mean, even uh, January 6th, right? If, if, if the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and, and those kinds of groups had actually been being surveilled before January 6th, then January 6th wouldn't have happened and there, were, there would be five more people still alive. Well, right? what, what, yeah, what I'm saying, though, is, is that what we have to do is say, well, a, would they have been surveilled? Right. Maybe. And then would the uh, having access to that, would that we would have been able to prevent them from doing what they did? Maybe. And, and what's the likelihood that those things all would have happened? Right. So, I, again, I'm not I'm not trying to dismiss the idea that you're placing there. But what I'm saying is, is I'm not sure to say. I don't think it's clear cut to say, oh, it's 100 percent likely that had we had backdoor uh, access to the Proud Boys, that we A, would have activated those, B, been able to use them effectively. And even if we had C, then be able to prevent them from gathering in D.C., i.e. in, in, in some way to have uh, uh, stopped them preemptively. Yeah, actually, I have to agree with you on all that. I mean, there's a lot of um, the U.S. government is a little bit more of a rule of law government than other governments. So right. 
Yeah, in the U.S., um, even if the technology was in place to allow that kind of surveillance, it mostly wouldn't happen without actual warrants based on probable cause and necessity. That's very different than how governments like like Saudi Arabia and China and Russia are, are operating. Um, so I got to agree with you that the you know the technological backdoors wouldn't necessarily have, have led to the kind of protections I'm talking about. And also, of course, the the, the U.S. Um, there was political control here, and when when Trump was in charge of the government. Um, he would have he would have vetoed that kind of um, 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 operation designed to actually um, obstruct the attack on the Capitol. So so yeah, in my own example, that that I, I got to agree with you that that wouldn't have actually been stopped. Um, uh, but um, but I you know I I I, I still would think that. Um, you know, some different kinds of terrorism, say, say that we've had episodes of Islamic terrorism in the United States. And I think, um, you know, unlike the right wing militia terrorism, where there were some political barriers to really um, trying our hardest to stop it. Uh, I think with the Islamic terrorism in the United States, there have not been particular political barriers against trying hard to, to, to surveil those communities and to stop those attacks from taking place. And so, um, you know, if, if, if technologies were um, uh, in, in place there, you know, maybe there would have been some some more success. So it's it's but, I you know, I can't argue too hard for this side because I have a lot of sympathy for the side that you're arguing. <laughs> no, I understand. I understand. And, and you know, again, we're trying to argue for that. And uh, it's not hard. Now, I do. You know, we're we're kind of uh, closing out. So I, I don't want us to miss out on talking about uh, the DOJ uh, and the State Department. So why don't we you know kind of move to this, you know, the next story or the addendum to the story, uh, which is also that this week on Monday, Monday, uh, President Biden accused China of protecting and accommodating uh, the attackers who had hacked Microsoft Outlook. The U.S. Secretary of State Blinken added that China was, quote, a major threat to our economic and national security, end quote, because it had, quote, fostered an ecosystem for criminal contract hackers, end quote. Also on Monday, the Justice Department unsealed an indictment against four Chinese nationals with a long-term goal of hacking into U.S. companies, universities, and governments, including 11 other countries. Now, this all actually happened in May, but it was unsealed on Monday. The Justice Department states in its indictment that the hackers targeted infectious disease research related to Ebola, MERS, HIV, AIDS, and other infectious diseases. Uh, so this is uh, kind of the ongoing struggle between the United States and China over a number of issues. But now, again, we're talking about hacking and it's coming back to hacking. And it's a, it's a big moment to actually have this indictment. Now, this is really in your wheelhouse, Ken. So how, how big of a deal is that? Well, it's it's more of a deal politically and diplomatically than than legally because it's it's actually going to be hard to um, apprehend these people, these these Chinese nationals who are the subject of the indictment, and bring them to to justice in the United States. So I I think we're really unlikely to see courtroom proceedings. You know, you'll you'll remember that in the uh, Mueller report. There were a bunch of um, Russian hackers who were uh, um, actually indicted by the by the special counsel's office, and you know none of them have been brought to to the to justice in the in the U.S. So um, I think the the real significance of the indictments is primarily how 
it um, plays out diplomatically and, 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 and politically. But I, I do think that significance is that um, the, 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 there's sort of the U.S. is taking a position on something now that has been a mystery for about 10 years, or at least an amb- ambiguity for about 10 years, which is that it has been known that um, Chinese hackers have been hacking into um, uh, um, oil pipelines and electric power uh, grids um, since about 2011 or 2012. So in a certain sense, there's this isn't new. Um, but, but what's new here is that th- there used to be some debate about why they were doing that. And I think that perhaps the predominant view was that they were doing that so that they could steal um, technology and infringe intellectual property rights without paying for it. That Which they, again, they could... just to insert, that has been a long-standing Chinese practice to ignore intellectual property, and that has been a big issue between the United States and China as long as there's been WTO disputes continue. <laughs> yeah. So so I think that um, although there were always some voices that said, no, that's not what China's up to. What they're really up to is is um, a- offensive military operations, that they're, they're actually trying to situate themselves with these hacks so that they can shut down critical U.S. infrastructure, not just try to, you know, copy critical U.S. infrastructure for their own uses. Um, you know, I think finally now these indictments, along with these State Department statements and, and President Biden's statement, um, squarely position the U.S. on that side of the debate, that, that after 10 years of noticing that China has been hacking into our, our pipelines and electric power grids, but but thinking, well, that's a minor problem. What they're doing is stealing our IP. Um, you know, now the U.S. has come out and said, no, that's a major problem. What they're doing is actually facilitating facilitating their own ability to wage cyber war against us and to shut down our critical infrastructure. Um, so um, I, I, that seems to me to be the truth. Um, I think it's it's a it's a pretty um, harsh pill to have to recognize because it exposes that that we have some some serious vulnerabilities. Uh, we did just suffer this colonial uh, pipeline shutdown, and I I actually happened to drive to Florida during the period of um, the colonial pipeline shutdown. And when I was driving through North Carolina and South Carolina, it really was hard to get gasoline. Like quite a lot of gas stations were closed because they couldn't get any gas. Um, so that was a little bit of taste of uh, you know what it would be like if a foreign government um, was able to shut down part of our critical infrastructure. Um, so I, I think that um, to me, the big significance of the indictments is that the, the US is, is calling out China for taking very serious um, offensive military operations against us right now, which is a dangerous thing. So now here's one of the things that I I hadn't been thinking about as this had come around. Now, you know, one of the the views that was pushed even pre-Trump, but Trump as well, one that I had, had had disagreed with was the idea that we needed to to disentangle from other countries uh, so that we could have you know a kind of a greater sense of security, made sure things were kind of made in the United States. Now that's very anti-liberal uh, and, and very much anti-libertarian and, and free market. Do you see the the Biden administration coming out with this as perhaps saying you know? Trump was wrong in kind of the pomp and circumstance of it, but he was right in the substance of we have too close of ties with China and we've allowed them to do too much because we need them. Uh, I mean, because w- w- what's the push here, uh, do you think? Because, again, you noted that, you know, of course, th- th- these guys aren't going to ever actually come to the United States. They're never going to they're never going to have a trial. This is all about diplomatic pressure. But none of that seems to have really shaped China's approach. As a matter of fact, it doesn't seem to have majorly changed Russia's approach 
although in a very different way. We don't have the same kinds of connections we do with Russia. So what do you think about that? Could there have been some truth that we, as being kind of uh, liberal in that sense, have missed? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I think the problem with China is not, you know, trying to figure out whether they're good actors or bad actors, I think you know they they are somewhat bad actors. Um, but but as 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 you as you pointed out, um, the strategy of how do you deal with that? Um, I, I would have sided with you on this, and I think I still do side with this position that it, it's it's still better to have strategic engagement, um, even with with bad actors, than to have uh, isolationism. That, mm-hmm. that that if if we if we 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 we, we would not benefit. From uh, developing a new uh, a new Cold War, um, I think we have more of an opportunity to influence China um, in good directions through having relations. Um, we we have you know very complicated but significant um, economic relations with them, right? The, these these iPhones that they can hack into, you know, they're pretty much all made there, right? right, right we, yeah. we don't we well, don't all have phones a, are Android, all phones, iPhone, everything. Yeah, yeah, everything's made there, right? I mean, we we have um, uh, a lot lot of economic ties with them, both as a place where a lot of production takes place. You know, most of the stuff in Walmart, I think, is, is made there, but also as a, as a, as a, as the biggest and biggest growing market um, for U.S. companies to sell to. Um, so I think bo- both both economies are pretty intermingled. China, um, to the extent that China has been, you know, economically successful and making a lot of they've made a lot of money over the past couple decades. They've invested a lot of that money in the United States and in, in, in Wall Street is where they keep a lot of that money and things like that. So where they've loaned us a lot of money, um, you know, there, there's so much uh, economic ties between the two countries. And and I still believe that um, the, the, those economic ties provide a, a basis, um, ideally for, for more um, rapprochement and, and closer understanding and, and um, uh, moving in, in better directions towards um, the ability to deal with each other, not as um, um, enemies, that I, I would not favor... Um, you know, uh, ratcheting things up to a, a new Cold War. I definitely don't favor the kind of language that Trump was using, um, um, demonizing China in ways that also demonize um, Asian Americans who live in this country. Um, and and I, I don't think we can completely disengage from China for, for better or worse. I guess their, their economy may still not be quite as big as our economy, but soon enough it will be. They'll be the biggest economy in the world very, very soon. Um, you know, largely because of Trump, Trump burned so many bridges with our international diplomacy that China has kind of emerged as, um, you know, into the role that the U.S. used to have as kind of, you know, the the most um, significant hegemonic um, um, country in terms of international diplomacy. Um, We can't can't just start a Cold War against them. We have to stay engaged with them. And I think it's a very difficult balance, but I I think Biden is on the right track in terms of trying to um, call them out when they do bad things publicly. Like if if we know that they've hacked into our pipelines um, for the purpose of being able to shut down our pipelines, then we have to very publicly say, you know, they've done this, we've caught them, we dis we we di- we disarmed this threat that we we've we fixed up the software at our pipeline so they're not going to be able to get away with it and they need to stop it or we're going to retaliate in kind they need to stop it or we're going to take other kinds of economic sanctions against them you know I think pr- proportionate responses are necessary but that a, a complete new cold war is is actually a disproportionate response it goes beyond what's necessary. 
Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but I, you know, I, it'll be interesting to see what then becomes the response to this. I'm really curious what the ongoing evolution of the relationship between the United States and China is, uh, both personally and obviously professionally, because there's a lot of political science theory about you know what drives countries to change and have interaction. And of course, again, our ideological, the, the ideological piece that we both share is, of course, I'm not. Um, a conservative in that sense, right? I'm a classical liberal, and therefore on that front, that's why we we can align on so many things often, and I think in this area as well. Well, Ken, we had a lot more that we wanted to cover in the show, but we we have come to the end of our of our, of our uh, program for this weekend. Uh, so, if you want to hear more about the ongoing spec between Paul and Palsy, uh, if you Fossey, if you want to hear more. Um, uh, on a number of really cool issues, we're going to be recording a bonus show here in just moments uh, that will be released to you on Wednesday. Now, how do you get that bonus show? Well, we need your support. One of the great things about being a supporter is you get access to supporters-only content, including our full-length supporters-only Wednesday show. Uh, and so, again, Ken and I are going to be recording that in just moments uh, to be released on Wednesday. And if you're a supporter, you're going to have access to that because there was so much that we didn't get to. But you also get access to other supporter-only items, things like our Discord channel. So if you'd like to chat with myself or with Ken uh, or other supporters, you can gain access to Discord by becoming one. So if you want to become a supporter, if you like all of this, or if you just want to check out more of the benefits of supporting the Politics Guys, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics guys or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support so i really encourage you to join me and ken again on wednesday by heading to patreon.com slash politics guys if you've got a question comment correction or just a random thought you'd like to share you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com we're also on twitter at politics guys the executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Chris Wilkinson, and Ryan Beasley. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. I hope you'll join us on Wednesday.